Well, we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we want to get right to it. I want you to take your Bibles and let's open them up, please, to the book of the intertestamental period, please. The book of the intertestamental period. Find your way there. Why are you laughing? You don't know where that is? It's simple. It's only about two pages. It usually only has two words on the page, actually. <laughs> what kind of Bible students are you guys? All right, find your way to the, that page that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what we're talking about. Would you find your way there? Seriously, open your Bible to the page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, in my Bible, there's a blank page there. And I'm going to ask you, actually, to put notes on that page. Now, if you're using the, the book rack Bible, you don't have to do it in the book rack Bible. If you have your own Bible, now, if you're using a tablet, you're going to have a hard time with that. But we've supplied notes for you. Maybe you grab notes on the way in, or maybe you've got your Three Crosses app open. You can select the note-taking portion right there. And maybe what you would do this morning is you would take copious notes, as much as you can get down in, on the page, and then transfer the notes you take on your notes this morning into the page of your Bible. I did that in my Bible. I'll show you a picture of it. This is my intertestamental book right here. That's it. So between the two pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I've written the history of what happened in Israel. It's a fascinating period of time in Israel's history. I've never heard a sermon on this in my entire life. I've never given a sermon on this in my entire life. But today we're going to talk about the 400 years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew and what took place during that time. Are you excited about that? I don't think you are. <laughs> And I'm not sure I am either. Actually, I am. Because there is so much incredible history that takes place. This is what theologians call the silent years. It comprises about 400 years of silence. There's no mention, there's no talk from God. God is not uttering any words through his prophets. The last prophet, Malachi, around 397 B.C., it goes silent after that, and not until John the Baptist steps up in about 425 or so A.D. and begins to, excuse me, not 425 A.D., I'm talking about 25 A.D., about 400 years later where John the Baptist breaks the silence and, and God's people start hearing from God once again. This is a long, long night of silence. And we've been in a series now for a few weeks called uh, The Longest Night. And, you know, I thought it was kind of ironic. Last night, my, my grandson spent the night at our house. And it's the first time he's been out of his house. His parents, my daughter Carrie and her husband Roman, they had a Christmas party. And so they asked us weeks ago, could it be possible that we could watch Jack while they're at the party? Well, he goes down a certain time and they're going to be a little later. So I just suggested a few weeks ago, let's just keep him overnight. And they said, that would be phenomenal. That would be so great. So then, of course, the time goes on. This week, my wife has surgery on her eyes, so she can't pick up anything. So it's everything fine, a little cataract thing. And then, and then we've got the programs and rehearsals all week. And this is just a crazy week. And I thought, how ironic that I would be preaching on the longest night, possibly <laughs> after the longest night of my life. But the great news was, is he went down as scheduled right to bed and slept all through the night. Thank you, Jesus. I was so grateful for that. It was a great experience. He's such a wonderful little guy. And I think it was just because I sang him to sleep last night that he just slept so well. <laughs> we want to talk about these 400 years of silence today. And, and I know for some of us, 
you're going to feel like this is you're sitting in a history class. And in a way, you are. I'm going to give you the high points, the 30,000-foot view of what happened over 400 years. And all of you are going to be transformed by that. <laughs> because at the end of it, you're going to understand why this is so important. Some of us are yearning for this. I mean, we're in the Christmas season, and we're going through 400 years of Old Testament history. Come on, we want to be happy. Well, we don't get to be happy until Jesus comes. And we're in a series called The Longest Night, where it starts with, remember, a little bit of slippage in the people's lives with God. A little compromise that leads to a sin-induced suffering period known as the exile. They're in Babylon. And then God opens the door and a little hope creeps in and the people are allowed under Cyrus the Great to go back into their homeland. And there they set up camp once again and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the wall and things are seemingly going along. There's even some reform going on spiritually but then suddenly they start drifting back down and now we pick up the story here at the end of the, of the Old Testament narrative where we find the book of Malachi sort of ranting against the people for their sin sinful disregard of God. And God closes the Old Testament with saying, if you don't get it together, I'm going to bring judgment. And all of this is going to go all the way until the time that my prophet Elijah steps up to speak. And then 400 years of absolute silence. Now, here's something you may want to write down somewhere in your notes. Eventually it's going to wind up in your Bible. Listen, just because God isn't speaking doesn't mean he isn't working. Amen? You know, sometimes we think like we don't, we don't perceive God saying much, but I want to address that real quick in just this opening little salvo this morning that we are not living in the day where God is silent. God has spoken. And I want to just quote right here. We're going to put it on the screen. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it out loud together. Are you ready for this? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Now, of course, the writer of Hebrews is referring to Jesus Christ here in his opening words of the epistle. So God isn't silent anymore. We know that God spoke through Messiah, Jesus, and we know that the, uh, the apostles that followed the Lord Jesus Christ as they penned out the words of the New Testament with both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the canon of Scripture as we know it, is a, an open uh, document. It's a revelation of God to his people. God is not silent. We can trust him that he's speaking to us today, not by extra revelation, but by the revelation he's given to us in his word in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think that that's phenomenal. I'm grateful that God is still speaking today and that we don't have to wonder if he's speaking. But sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it feels like God is silent, right? Anybody ever feel that way? And maybe you're in a season right now where it feels silent. And there's nothing like a, seer, a, a, a seeming silence to sort of get our attention and get our eyes where they need to be. And that's really what this whole series is about. It's leading us somewhere. It's taking us to the place where we can receive what God has for us. And this is what the silent years are all about. God is, is bringing about in Scripture, uh, he's bringing about from the past of Scripture to the future of what Scripture is going to reveal to us, 
what he is doing in the world. This is a part of God's plan. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to give you three big pictures of what took place during this season of 400 years. Three big pictures, and then under the, and we're going to rig those right to Scripture. You're going to see a, a, a poignant focus on Scripture, and then we're going to do a little menu drop down, especially in the second section where we talk about all the kingdoms that come and go during this time. And this is the basic point of what we read here in this in this final prophet of Malachi, we read that God is about to do some amazing things. Now, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see, these three things about this 400 years of silence, is the first mark is a pervasive falling away of God's chosen people, Israel. A pervasive falling away. Now, just as a memory key, summarizing this point in two words, and we're going to do this all through these three points, I want us just to say falling away. Are you ready? Here we go. Falling away. I want you to remember the 400 years of silence is a pervasive period of God's people Israel falling away. And the book of Malachi, if you're there, you're in the middle, right? You're the page between the Old Testament and New Testament. Malachi's right to the left. Would you just go back to chapter 1 of Malachi? And you'll see Malachi is going to address this uh, political uh, and, and often uh, indifference that the people of God had toward God himself. There's this indifference and even a resentment of God's people toward God, evidenced by priests and people violating the law of Moses in regard to the sacrifice, in regard to the tithes, in regard to offerings. We see this in chapter 1 where he says, A son honors his father, verse 6, a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty, it is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. And the priests argue back, where have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar, God says. How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Then you bring, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. That word governor there is a reminder the people were under. That's a word describing the political background of Persia. So we know that Malachi here, the prophet Malachi, is referencing how God's people had just sort of slipped away, slipped away, slipped away. And you see this. There was a, a, a chapter 2, the abomination uh, of the priestly role and how they were mocking God by not honoring them with all their heart and how that produced an unfaithfulness and that God was going to bring judgment and that they were robbing, chapter 3, they were robbing God. They were not giving him of their best. They were holding back. They were not bringing to the storehouse their tithes and offerings. And so this is, listen, this is 100 years after the people of Israel are back into the land out of exile. And already they're just sliding right back down the hill again. And this is, this is a, one of the big marks of what takes us into this period known as the silent years. Intermarriages with pagans, divorce goes on the rise, a rise of immorality. Uh, we see that in chapter 2 as well. And Malachi addresses all these things. Now, in chapter 3, there's also a mention that there will be a remnant. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make my, up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son uh, who serves him. 
And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So God says there is going to be a remnant. I'm going to preserve a remnant. But watch this. He says, he warns the people, chapter 4, verse 4, don't forget the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws that I gave him at Horeb. In other words, keep the commands, stay on track with this, and watch for the coming of Elijah to restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. This is called repentance. Else I come to you in judgment. Look at that in verse 6 of of chapter 4. The Old Testament closes with the warning of judgment coming if the people do not repent. Wow. And then, silence. This is the first mark of the intertestamental period. God's people sliding downhill, a pervasive disobedience, a pervasive falling away from their God. A second thing that we see in these 400 years is a long and difficult succession of foreign dominance. And I would like you to turn to the book of Daniel, please. We're going to just log into Daniel for just a minute. If you don't know where Daniel is, go left. If you're in Malachi, go left. You're going to go back to the beginning of the minor prophets where Daniel is found. He's actually not a minor prophet, but he's right before the minor prophets, Hosea. If you're in Jeremiah, go right. Uh, Ezekiel. Daniel, right here, Daniel chapter 7. We've been talking about the power of Old Testament prophecy, and oh my goodness, here in Daniel 7, we've got this picture of of all these kingdoms that are going to rise, and I don't have time to go through all this. I really wish we did, uh, but I'm going to just throw out some big things to you right here, And, and if you're taking notes, what I want you to see in this section, this mark of the 400 years of silence if you're taking notes, is foreign domination. So first we have falling away, and then we have what? We have foreign domination. And this is what Daniel is telling us in Daniel 7. He says, look at all these kingdoms that are going to rise. Uh, Look at verse 4. There's a lion which symbolizes Babylon. Okay, and we're going to talk about a little bit more of that. In 7.5, verse 5, there's a bear which symbolizes Medo-Persia. In 7.6, there's a leopard which symbolizes Greece. And in 7-7, there's this terrifying, frightening, very powerful, large iron-toothed beast with ten horns symbolizing Rome and probably two aspects of the Roman Empire. And now you say, well, how do you know those things connect with kingdoms? If you look over at verse 17 of chapter 7, it says the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise on the earth. And so this is how we know that these are kingdoms. And if I had the time, I would take you through why each of these metaphors of the lion, the bear, the leopard... And, and this terrifying beast that comes with the ten horns all reflect the kingdoms that I have just mentioned. They found many of them are in scripture, some of them just historical. For example, the leopard being Greece, uh, Greece quickly conquered the entire world in such a short period of time. Uh, the bear, its size, 1.5 million soldiers of the Medo-Persian Empire that took over Babylon. Babylon itself, known as the lion. We find this in Jeremiah chapter 4. Actually, biblical references about the, the reference of this kingdom, Babylon, being likened unto a lion, this fierce beast. And so we've got this progression that Daniel is showing us. Now think about this. Before all of this happens, he says, here's what's going to happen on the world scene. <laughs> Are you listening? Say amen. Are you listening? I'm looking out there with some glazed eyes already. I'm looking at you. Okay, he say, look, before all this happened, he says, there's going to be Babylon, there's going to be Medo-Persia, there's going to be Greece, and there's going to be Rome. I think that that's fascinating because that's what history shows us. 
This is incredible. And if you go over to Daniel chapter 9, you find even more detail about this end time events during the Roman Empire, how there's going to be these, the, uh, actually the, this is known in biblical prophecy as the age of the Gentiles, okay? And so in this age of the Gentiles, you've got these 69 weeks, Daniel chapter 9, and on that last of the weeks, there's this, this uh, the coming of, of, uh, of Antichrist, there's one week of sevens, one week of sevens where this great tribulation comes on the world. This is forecasting something much further in the future. This is fascinating. If you're a student of Bible prophecy, you just start salivating when you look at this stuff because it's giving world history before it happens. It's the future before it happens. And there, it is somewhat cryptic. We can't be dogmatic on all things, but when we look at this stuff, it just it sends chills up my spine to realize that God is giving a direct word. He's saying, you better get ready. These are the things that are happening. This is what's going down. And this period, these 400 years of silence, is marked by this long and difficult succession of foreign dominance. Now, I'm going to give you a little flyover, and this is going to be great. I'm going to give you about 400 years of history in 10 minutes here, or less. Good luck, right? Here we go. The first thing, we're going to look at these periods of what takes place. Okay, so we go from Babylon. Remember, they're in exile. Now the next ruling empire is the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great. Remember, he steps up and says, all y'all that want to go back to Israel, you can do it. And he lets the people go back. First Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. And they go back in waves and they rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and, uh, and they, they set the people sort of on a better course. This happens during the Medo-Persian Empire. And what was known in the Medo-Persian Empire was a long period known of toleration. I want to give you a word that will sort of capture what each of these kingdoms do in relation to the people of Israel. So there was this toleration. Here's what Cyrus said and the succession of Medo-Persian kings during those 200 years of their power. They basically said, look, as long as you guys respect and submit to the empire, the Medo-Persian empire, you're, we're going to give you a level of autonomy. You, could, you can be restored to your land. You can start your lives again. You can rebuild your temple. You can worship as you would like. As long as you don't make a fuss, you can have a general sense of autonomy. And there were 200 years of Israel's history in this silent period where they had this kind of general autonomy. They could actually do the things that they wanted to do, and they could worship the way they wanted to worship. But keep in mind, and by the way, this is where Esther's story comes into the biblical narrative. And during these 200 years of the Medo-Persian Empire, there's, there's a trickle-down effect of, of the, the pollution of their, the, the culture of the Persian Empire onto the people of God. And there's starting to be these, these interesting little compromises and paradoxes that come into play. And we find this history fascinating. And by the way, I said these were silent years. There's no biblical text during these 400 years. We know the books of the Apocrypha. How many have heard of the words Apocrypha, the word Apocrypha? Uh, the Apocrypha were about 14 books to be exact, uh, historical primarily. Some of them wisdom, the wisdom of Sirach, Baruch, uh, Tobith, uh, some of these books that never made it into what we believe the canon of Scripture. And the reason they don't, Maccabees, Esdras, a couple of other historical books that describe some of the times during those 400 years. 
It gives us some insight into the history, but there's, they don't seem to carry the weight of Scripture, and that's why they're not really in our Bibles. It was the Westminster Confession that actually said, ah, they don't carry the same weight. Jesus never quoted from them. The apostles never quoted from them. We're going to leave those aside. Up until the time of Luther, the early church actually looked at the Apocrypha and often referenced the Apocrypha because of the historical side of it, but it doesn't seem to carry the weight of Scripture. So there were things that were being written, and that's why we know some of what took place during those 400 years. But as far as God say, thus saith the Lord, we don't have a word from God. The Medo-Persian Empire, 200 years, marked by this period of toleration for Israel, which moves us into the next period. Remember, we go from the lion uh, to the bear, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the bear, and then to the Grecian Empire, the Grecian Empire, 336 to 323 B.C. Who was the great leader of the Grecian Empire? Alexander the Great. Thank you, history majors. You're amazing. And, and Alexander the Great defeats the Persian Empire during the time of Darius III. And in one of the fastest culture changes known to the world, Greek culture spreads everywhere. We're talking art. We're talking common language. We're talking religion. We're talking politics. The spread of the Greek culture went as rapidly as possible throughout the known world at the time. So in relation to the Jews, in relation to the people of Israel, the word I'd like you to write in your notes there in terms of capturing the essence of this time under the Grecian Empire is Hellenization. Can you say that? Hellenization. Are you in a history class or what? Isn't this exciting? The Hellenization is a picture of how Greek culture transformed the entire world. This superpower, every culture in the world was influenced by Greece, still being influenced by those early years of Greece. A superpower that was cut down almost as quickly as it started up. But it was split up geographically to maintain its power. So you remember that Alexander the Great, at 33 years of age, died. How? By being sick. He had a fever and he died. You know, you think about these amazing people of conquest. They had the world at their fingertips. And then he catches the flu and he dies. I think it's fascinating to me how so often we put such stock into world leaders. They come on and off the stage. And here, after only 13 years in power, Alexander the Great dies. And he divides, or excuse me, the Grecian Empire divides into four areas because there was no one like Alexander the Great. So his generals, Ptolemy, Lysinicus, Cassander, and Seleucus, they split up the entire kingdom and now we've got four sort of mini Greek kingdoms. This is called the Egyptian period in relation to the Jews. And you can see that in, the, in, the, in your notes there, 323 to 198 B.C. And Ptolemy, one of the generals of Alexander the Great, uh, ruled over the Egyptian area that came up into the land of Palestine. And at first he treated the Jews very harshly, but later became tolerant of their customs and practices. During this time, two things are going on. First, there's a divide happening between these four geopolitical centers. These people are becoming sort of mini kings on themselves. There's rivalries going on during this period of, of history. And, and the, the structures for Israel, the social and religious structures in Israel begin to erode. Simply because there's too much Greek culture now embraced all over the world. Infiltrated the home, infiltrated politics, and even the religious life of God's people. 
So if you're taking notes, I want you to see that this period of time, the Egyptian period of time, in terms of the relationship to Israel would be considered as an assimilation period. And what I mean by assimilation is that Jews were slowly losing their distinctiveness in culture. They were losing their distinctive character. This resulted in huge trouble in terms of their aspect of worship. Religious leaders, as they got closer to secularism, spread into every aspect of worship. And this is just a, a crazy period among the Jews. And by the way, this is during the time where Ptolemy in Egypt allows, because of the Greek culture and influence, allows the Hebrew Old Testament to be translated into Greek. We call that the Septuagint. This happens in 270 B.C. Amazing stuff that's going on all over the world. Wish I could talk a little bit more about that, but we've got to move on. So we've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Egypt, and now we move into what we call the Syrian part, okay? So one of the other generals, Seleucus, okay, he's, uh, he's one of the generals of Alexander the Great, and he's taking over the area of Babylon. And while there's some level of toleration allowed for God's people to worship, increasing erosion and so forth starts happening, and there's one of the people during the Syrian, under the Seleucid Empire, decides, hey, we want to put someone that's really Greek-focused we want to we trade out uh, Israel's high priest with someone that's got a little bit more Greek culture in them. And so they make a deal with the next successive ruler of the Seleucids, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Does that name ring a bell? And Antiochus Epiphanes, who's going to be the next ruler, uh, uh, they make a deal with him and they place this, this uh, Hellenized leader in as the high priest over God's people, which causes this huge disruption. And Antiochus Epiphanes decides to come to Jerusalem himself and settle things. And in a rage, he sets out to destroy all the religious practices of the Jews. He forbids sacrifices to, made, to be made at the temple. He out, outlaws the rite of circumcision. He closes down all observance of the Sabbath. He cancels feast days. He mutilates and destroys every known Hebrew scripture, copy of the Hebrew Bible. He forces Jews to eat pork. And then as a climax of this in vendetta, he goes into the temple itself. He builds an altar to Zeus and he sacrifices a pig there. I mean, this was so scandalous to the people. This causes a huge uprising, great fight. Many Jews slaughtered during this period of time. This is a very dark period during the time of Israel. And if you're looking for a word, I would say this little section of history for the Jews during those 400 years would be marked by abomination. This is where it all gets turned upside down. Antiochus Epiphanes, he's sort of a figurehead of the Antichrist that's going to come and set up his kingdom and go into the temple of God and, and proclaim himself as the master of all things. Now this area is, is in this next one, comes, uh, comes to us in the, the form of what we call the Maccabean era, okay? Now what happens here, remember we've got Antiochus Epiphanes, he's the Seleucid ruler, there's all this upheaval, it's against the law to do anything in your Jewish faith, and the people of God had just sort of had enough, and there was a little uh, family by the name of the Maccabee family, Mattathias was the head of the home, living in a Jerusalem village, outside of Jerusalem, with his five sons. One day, a Seleucid ruler comes into the village and forces one of the Jews to make a sacrifice to a pagan god. And Mattathias has just had enough of this. And so he, he decides to kill the Jew 
that did the sacrifice and killed the Syrian ruler that came into his town. And then he takes his family and he flees to the mountains along with thousands of other Jews that heard what happened. And so now we've got like this civil war that's going on. In Jewish history, this is called the Maccabean Revolt, okay? Because during the years of about 167 and 134 B.C., Judas Maccabees, one of the sons of Mattathias, because he only lasted about a year after that and then he dies, uh, their sons go on this march and eventually, watch this, they take over Jerusalem, they restore the temple sacrifices, they celebrate the Feast of Dedication, and they do that known as what? Hanukkah. That's right. And so the Jewish people today, the menorah, the eight candles, and the one candle in the middle, that's the celebration of their dedication of the temple, of finally being restored to the land, finally being back into the place of God's people. And during this time, the Hasmonean dynasty, which came out of this, uh, led by a man by the name of John Hyrcanus, becomes the high priest and governor over God's people. And so now you've got this strange mix of religion and politics, and this causes a, a, a bit of a problem among the, the real um, uh, Orthodox Jews. They see too much power happening with the uh, religious leader of the day. And so they become the purists. And sort of this is sort of the ethos of the Pharisees uh, out of the Hasmonean house. Uh, I know this is getting a little complex, but stay with me here. This is going to all make sense in a second. If you're looking for a, just a point that marks this period of the Maccabean Revolt for the Jews, I would call this restoration. You could write that down. But I want you to put a little asterisk next to restoration because it really isn't. It's like this, a little bit of like, look, we're back. We're back in the temple. We're doing sacrifices. We're in charge. Oh, actually not. It's still the Seleucid rule, and there's still an empire that is over you, but they're giving you this opportunity because you kind of like it created this civil war, and you're back in your hometown, but there's still a lot of strife out there. But there's like this, you know, hunkering down. You can just see the Jews saying, we're, We've had enough, and we're not moving. And this is what marks this period of the Maccabean age. And that takes us all the way down to 63 BC, where, where then. Jewish independence finally ends. It comes to a screeching halt in 63 BC when a general named Pompey conquers Seleucid rule and enters Israel. The Jewish king at the time, Aristobulus II, decides to lock Pompey out of Jerusalem. He says, you're not coming in here. This is our home. Nobody comes into our home and does this. And Pompey says, okay, if you want it that way, uh, you're going to have a problem. And he takes the city by force. A few years later, 47 B.C., Julius Caesar, the Roman, uh, uh, the Roman Empire, appoints an Idomean king named by the name of Antipater to be the procurator of Judea. And we, know, we don't know so much about Antipater by history, but we know that he had a son named Herod who would eventually be installed as the king or the, you know, the procurator over Judea in 40 B.C. This would be known as Herod the Great. This is the Herod that was around during the time when the wise men came from the east searching for the child to be born. He was a devoted, Herod the Great was a devoted Hellenist. He embraced the Greek culture. He was a hater of the Jews, and even more so the Hasmonean family, which were the Orthodox Jews. He kills every descendant of the Hasmonean house he can find, including his wife, who was the granddaughter of John Hyrcanus. It's amazing. I just love this stuff. As well as his sons who he thought might be a threat to his kingdom. 
Herod had done some powerful things among the people and among his reign in Judea, but he had done some gruesome, very gruesome things. Herod was a madman. He had an ego bigger than life. But Herod the Great, in wanting to gain favor from the Jews, did something for the Jews. He built elaborate buildings. He restored the temple to its former pre-exile condition. You remember once when Jesus was walking among his disciples, and they looked at the grandeur of the temple. That was Herod's temple. Herod had built this temple to make the Jews proud of him and wanting to follow him. Even though he was their enemy, he hated them. Couldn't stand them. And Herod, of course, is in power when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Focus about that. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. A word to help us frame this period in Israel's history would be vexation. Vexation. Children of Israel were vexed by Rome and all of its terrible focus on on eliminating and, and taking away their rights. They had lost their independence. So let's just do a little quick walkthrough. Remember, we've got a period of toleration, Hellenization, assimilation, abomination, restoration, somewhat, vexation. But before we leave Rome, let's remember one thing that Rome did. Rome did actually a few things. The Pax Romana. When Rome was the empire of the world, it allowed there to be peace and travel between places. Protection of people's lives and property. A governmental system that ordered with law and order. And finally, among many other things, roads. Rome was known for its amazing ability to create transportation opportunities for people all over the known world. And all of this is a reminder to us of where, why God allowed these 400 years. He was silent, but he was working. He was doing something. And I want to talk about just one more thing before we put a bow on this whole thing, all right? We talk about three big epochs, three areas. First is a falling away. Then there's a foreign domination. Those are the two marks. Here's a third mark of this 400 years. I call it fractured faith. Polarizing communities in the religious context of Judaism. And I know we're out of time here, and I, I'm just going to say some words that maybe will kind of frame what I'm talking about here, this, this fractured faith. There's so much division among the Jews by the time Jesus arrives. We've got synagogue versus temple. We've got Sadducees versus Pharisees. We've got uh, zealots versus Herodians. We've got scribes, Essenes, and publicans. We've got so many different levels of appreciation and disappreciation for uh, the people of God and what mattered among the people of God. On every corner, there was a different flag being presented. It's not really that much different from the way Christianity looks today, to be honest with you. That there's all these fragments and different focuses and people that are going their own way and everyone deciding that their way is right. And there's strife and frustration and the world looks at all that like they looked in this day and it was a mess. But here's, here's, if you've been sort of drifting along, here's where you need to like dial it right back in. Are you ready for this? You know what God was doing over those 400 years? He was bringing a thirst to his people. He was creating a sense of desperation in his people's hearts. So that when he finally sent his Messiah, there would be such a desire to finally follow this King of kings, this Lord of lords. 
Because what desperation does in our lives, it moves us to anticipation. I want you to write that down. Desperation moves us to anticipation. I can think of people I've talked to in the last couple of weeks. I've got a few stories. Don't have time to tell them. But people that are in desperate places. People that just, they don't know how life could possibly be any worse. And I'm thinking, okay. And it feels like God is so far away. It might be that God is closer than you ever could imagine in the moment of your desperation. Because God is tuning your heart to see something you would never see on your own. Never see when things are just going good. You know, some of us, and here's where I'm going to talk back to some of us right now who for the last couple of weeks have been sending me little notes. Hey, isn't this Advent? Shouldn't we be talking about the joy and the fun of Christmas? God said, it's going to get real dark before it gets light. And that's why when the angels showed up on the hillside in Bethlehem and they said, today a Savior has been born. This will be good news for all people. It was the thunderous voice of heaven saying, this is the day you've waited for. And I love what the scripture says. He came to that which was his own, but oh, look at this. But his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. If there's a desperate season in your life today, can you just... Understand that God may be wanting to get your attention so that you will fully embrace and grab onto Jesus like you've never grabbed on before. That's why Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, born of flesh. This is the message of the gospel, that God visited this planet, that God came on the tail end of the darkest season of Israel's history. The light has come. Praise God. And next week we're going to celebrate that light. The light shows up. Christmas. That's why we're here. That's why we're celebrating. Listen, God is always going to wait until man's efforts have been frustrated before he steps in. And some of us today... We need, right now today, we've been in a season of frustration, a season of hurt, a season of desperateness, and we don't know what's happening next, and I'm just going to share with you this morning that what needs to happen next is for you to embrace the one who came, who lived his life, who died for you and rose again from the grave, and to follow him. I mean, hey, if you're going to, don't do the golf clap. If you're excited about that, do the real clap. I mean, you know, you should be thankful to God. This morning he's here. He's waiting. 